the one thing that's on everyone's mind is the COVID-19, um, which is a disease uh, caused by the current coronavirus that is spreading around. And it has caused the federal government today to declare a state of emergency. Maryland declared a state of emergency already, and we are up to 17 cases in Maryland and many more in the United States. But to get to the science of what the actual coronavirus is, um, or sorry, the actual SARS-CoV-2, the official name of the coronavirus, I'm here with Dr. John Dye, the Chief of Viral Immunology at USAMRIN. Yes, hi. So I guess let's just start off with some science. Sure. <laughs> Can you describe what this virus is and why it's called a coronavirus? Sure. So SARS-CoV-2. Actually, there have been numerous coronaviruses that have infected humans over the years. There's actually four coronaviruses, human coronaviruses, that are actually in the population today circulating. However, they don't cause lethality. They just cause common cold features. So there have actually been three spillover events from an animal into humans that have occurred in the past. And the first was in 2003, and it was actually called SARS-1. It's now designated SARS-1. And that occurred, and it ran its course, and we cleared that and haven't had any problems with it since. And then in 2012, there was another coronavirus called MERS. It's Middle East Respiratory Virus, or MERS. And that ran its course, and it's continued on. This new virus is called SARS-2 because it has a 70% identity or similarity to the original SARS-1 that occurred in 2003. So it gets its name because it's very similar to something we've seen before. And from what I understand, both SARS and MERS are more lethal than this current one as we know right now. That is correct. So there was a 10% lethality in one and a 30% lethality in another. And this particular one, although we don't know exactly what the lethality rate is, it seems to be much, much lower than either of those two. All right. So we're talking about the spike proteins and that's how they infect. But I understand that's also where a lot of the vaccines are focusing on. Right. So in addition to being important for the virus to enter the lung cells, as we talked about, it actually is the one of the only proteins that's actually seen by your body and your body's immune system. So your immune system recognizes things that are foreign to it, like a virus or a bacteria or any pathogen, and it generates a response against that. And those spike proteins are the first things, those flags that your immune system sees that it can produce an immune response against. So the idea is if you make a vaccine that doesn't have the genetic material or the lipid layer, but just has the spike protein, you're predisposing your immune system to be able to make a response against the virus itself. So when it sees the whole virus, not just the spike, it can respond. So that's, and then for therapeutics or treatments, the idea is if you can block the ability of the spike protein, the key to bind with the lock, which is ACE2, if you can block that with an antibody or a drug, a small molecule, then you can block the infection. You don't get the infection in the lungs, and then you don't spread it to other people, and we're all happy. All right. So in terms of blocking that, that spike protein or making an immune response, mm -hmm. I understand there are different parts of the spike protein you can focus on? So there are. So there are more what you would call immunodominant parts. So immuno, the immune system, dominant, more prevalent. So there are parts of the spike protein which are more accessible to your immune system to generate that immune response. And that makes them a better target 
to actually include in that vaccine or try to block in the treatment because the accessibility means that you can actually go in and develop an immune response to it to block it. There are parts that are more recessed that you can't get to. All right, perfect. So with the um, different vaccine methods, can I've heard that there are ones like nanoparticles mm-hmm. or focusing on DNA, and I was hoping you could explain a little bit what these four different ways of making a vaccine or delivering a vaccine. Delivering a vaccine, sure. So there are different ways to go about delivering a vaccine or ways of generating a vaccine. There are protein vaccines. So protein vaccines are, if you were to take the spike protein, produce it artificially outside of the virus itself, and then provide that spike protein in an injection into a person, you would generate immune response against it. The problem with a protein is that it is degraded within your body. So therefore, it's not going to last very long. So you will get a nice immune response, but it won't be a long-lived immune response that's generated to it. So that's proteinaceous, okay? Another possibility is that you would actually put into a vaccine the DNA or the RNA, the genetic material, to make the spike protein. So then what happens is your cells in your body start making that spike protein. They're not making the whole virus. They're just making that spike protein. And the beauty of that is that they can make that protein for as long as that RNA and DNA are present. So they'll make that protein so you can get a more long-lasting immune response that can be generated. There are negatives to that vaccine as well, which is that RNA and DNA are not very stable outside of a nice lipid bilayer like a virus. So if you put that RNA and DNA, it has a short half-life. It can be removed very quickly. So those are the two major types of vaccines that are being assessed for this particular outbreak and this particular, those are the, the most likely candidates of what's going to move forward. All right. And just so people understand, can you think of any quick examples of some of those vaccines that we might already experience Sure. So measles, mumps, rubella is is similar to that. There are also the DNA vaccines that are moving forward for herpes viruses as well. So there's lots of pathogens where they're using this technology in order to generate the immune response. All right. Um, And I know a lot of people are focusing on when we can have a vaccine. And I hear, you know, 12 to 18 months. Some people are claiming earlier. Some people are saying it might take longer. Can you explain very briefly kind of what the journey of a vaccine. The vaccine development? Yes. Okay. So you hear a lot of different answers for how long it's going to take to develop a vaccine. Uh, The company Moderna has actually already generated a vaccine, but it's not just the generation of the vaccine because you have to test that vaccine in animal models and then in human trials for safety to see if that vaccine is actually generating the immune response you want Is it safe? And then is it actually efficacious? So when they talk about the lifespan or development of a vaccine, that whole, that whole long lifespan, it's because it takes time to, you can make the vaccine, then you have to test the vaccine, then you have to put it into humans to make sure it's safe, then you have to put it into humans to make sure there's an immune response generated, and then maybe you can get it into humans to see if it's actually efficacious. And then after that, or somewhere in that process, you have to ramp up 
the production of that vaccine. And it can take a while to get the doses that you would need in order to vaccinate the populations that you find to be most susceptible or at highest risk. So looking at some of our previous outbreaks like Ebola Mm -hmm. or SARS or MERS, I've understood that like when it's happening, there's a lot of attention on vaccine development and treatment development. But once the outbreak kind of stops and hopefully this one will soon, sometimes that attention moves away from the vaccine development. Things can halt. Do you think that's something that is at jeopardy here? That is always a concern that there are outbreaks that are occurring. And when that outbreak is over, the immediate attention moves away from that and it moves to the next, whatever the next virus is. So if you think about it in 2013 and 2014, you and I were sitting here talking about Ebola or we were talking about it shortly thereafter. And I think at that point we were talking about, well, now there's this new virus Zika that was hitting South America as well as hitting Central America and moving up into the, into the, into the United States. Uh, And then Zika kind of went the way, and now we're talking about this particular virus. So I think the follow-through by the federal government and industry partners to actually see a vaccine candidate or a therapy all the way through to the end of the life cycle to production to FDA approval is sometimes difficult because we are always looking down the road to the next, not necessarily finishing what we've started. All right. So in terms of USAMRIT, are you allowed to say a little bit about what USAMRIT is currently doing to to help with this current outbreak? I'm proud to say what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So uh, USAMRIT has a unique set of competencies and capabilities that allow us in an interagency manner to respond to this particular emerging infectious disease. So USAMRIT has been around for over 50 years, and we've been responding to outbreaks and emerging infectious diseases for that whole time. Uh, And we'll continue to do that after this outbreak as well. Um, With this particular virus, we have currently, we have this virus in our institute. We are currently growing it up. We're titering it, which is determining how much of the virus is, how infectious it is. Uh, And then that that vaccine, excuse me, that virus that we have will be utilized by our scientists in collaboration with government, academia, industry, as well as our own institute to test therapeutics, vaccines, and diagnostics. So the test to tell you if you have it. So all of the will be able to be done at USAMRID as we're growing up this virus. In addition to that, so there's a lot we're doing. Uh, USAMRID has a capability, which is to develop animal models. So in order to test a vaccine or a therapeutic, you really need to have a small animal or a large animal model to assess that. And that is something we specialize in. That is something we are excellent at. So we are in the process of trying to develop animal models to address this. So just to clarify, when you say small and large animals, can you just give us a general idea of what that means? Sure. It's not mice and whales. <laughs> um, no, no problem. So a small animal model uh, is a rodent model. So a mouse, a guinea pig, uh, a hamster, and that would be a model that we would use. And then if that vaccine or countermeasure is effective in that model, we would move it forward into a larger animal model, which would be like a non-human primate. Now, in order for a drug or vaccine 
to go through FDA licensure, you would need to have that animal model, large animal model, non-human primate data associated with it to show that it is efficacious in that particular model. Okay. And I know we're talking about SARS-CoV-2, but this is something that you've done at USAM for Ebola and other... Yes. So we have developed multiple animal models for multiple different infectious agents. And one of our best success stories is actually we were the ones that developed the animal model that was used for the licensure of the 2000, in December of 2019 of the Ebola vaccine. So we have this experience in-house and we've been doing it for a number of years. And what's important is that at USAMRID, we've been doing it for a long time and we're going to continue to do it. And we'd like to see things all the way through to completion. So getting that licensed product at the end of the story, that's the success right there. And correct me if I'm wrong, but USAMRID was also involved in early stages of Gilead Sciences Remstevere when it was being looked at for Ebola? Correct. So remdesivir is a product by Gilead. It actually is in clinical studies right now for both Ebola, but also now it's in clinical studies both in the United States and in China for this particular virus, the the SARS-CoV-2. So can you explain a little bit how something that was targeting for Ebola Uh (laughs) can now be used for something like SARS-CoV-2 when they're completely different viruses? It's a great question. So We talked about the spike protein and trying to block how the spike, different drugs work different ways. The remdesivir product doesn't work in that mechanism. It's not specific to a spike protein, which would be different from Ebola than it is from SARS. So the way remdesivir works is it actually, rather than blocking the virus from getting into the cell, it actually disrupts the ability of the virus to make more copies of itself once it gets into the cell. So it's a later stage type of drug, but it's very effective in that it basically makes it so the virus, when it tries to make more copies, they either the copies are bad or they're just not able to be formed properly. And so once it's not formed properly or can't be made, it stops. Exactly. It gets, just gets degraded in your cell and that's all that matters. So you don't have that viral spread that's occurring within your own body, which then stops the viral spread outside. So with the um, the current SARS-CoV-2, we talked about the spike proteins, but mm-hmm. what about that main body of it? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that needs to be targeted with drugs or vaccines for that main body? So the main body would be targeted with drugs like remdesivir. So anything that works intracellular or inter- intervirion particle would be like remdesivir, which is basically blocking the ability of that RNA or DNA to be replicated and translocated and move forward into making future virus particles. And you talked about that lipid membrane mm-hmm. around the virus. Does that make it Good or bad for people trying to get prevent it from uh, by washing their hands or using hand sanitizer? Sure. So the lipid membrane is actually made up of part of your cells. So when a virus releases itself from a person who's infected, it actually is taking along your own membranes with it into the future. So when you talk about disrupting the cycle of a viral infection, Washing hands with soap and water or sanitizer, either one is going to block that capability. So basically what would happen is the soap and the agitation that's occurring when you wash your hands, you're actually disrupting that membrane, lysing that membrane, so that therefore that virion particle is no longer infectious. So it sounds like the virus itself is not 
super hardy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's viruses themselves are actually not very hardy organisms, uh, which is good for us. The fact that they actually need to be inside of you in order to propagate and continue and survive tells you something about them. So that's a really good thing for us in that they are relatively unstable once you get them out into the open. All right. So you mentioned hand sanitizer or washing your hands with soap, but I keep hearing, you know, everyone's running out to get hand sanitizer. They're very worried. Sounds like just washing your hands with soap for 20 seconds, singing happy birthdays, good enough. And I would direct you to the CDC website (laughs) and other websites, which will tell you exactly that, that you can use hand sanitizer, but washing your hands and singing your happy birthday song like my seven and nine year old do is perfectly acceptable too. But I would ask you to, there's a lot of information out there and it's hard sometimes to decipher what information is correct and right and wrong. So I would say, make sure that you check your sources and you use approved sites to actually give you advice on how to move forward. And the CDC has an excellent site. And there are other sites, there are government sites that are available from the health services that can tell you how to move forward. All right. So to talk again about how different um, viruses, I know when we're looking at outbreaks, there's the r naught, which is the reproduction number. Mm-hmm. And I know that's still in question right now, but they're thinking it's between two to four, depending right. on the study. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Sure. So when you look at the an outbreak and you look at a virus's uh, capabilities, you really need to break it down into two things. It's transmissibility and then lethality. So if you look at this particular virus, um, the transmissibility, how likely it is for me to give it to someone else, we don't really know exactly what those numbers are, but we think it's either similar to the flu or might be slightly higher to the, than the flu. So that's the first step. How easy can you pass it? So as one person, can I pass it to two people, four people? How does that occur? The second part is lethality. How likely is it if you get that virus that you are going to succumb to that virus? So right now, I don't believe there's enough information out there to actually determine what that number is. And I will tell you why. It's simple fractions. We know what the numerator is, which is how many people have unfortunately succumbed to this virus. What we are still trying to understand is what is the denominator? The denominator is how many people actually have the virus. And right now, since we do not have the adequate number of kits and we're not testing everyone, we don't really know how many people are truly infected. So getting a lethality rate becomes very difficult. However, what we can say is that from the number of people that we do know that are infected from the minimal tests that we have done and the number of people that have succumbed, it's somewhere, at least right now, between 2 and 4%. But my guess is that that will probably come down as we test more people and find that more people actually had it, but they didn't even know they had it. So in terms of an outbreak, having a lethality in about 2% and having a R naught around 2 to 4, mm-hmm. does that make it for a better, I don't want to say better because that sounds good, but a worse outbreak because it can spread easily and it doesn't kill as many people versus something that might kill its host a lot faster? Right. So that that's a really interesting question. So from the virus's standpoint, it's a very effective virus. 
because it is. And the other thing is incubation period. How long does, how long are you actually shedding virus? And it appears from early data, it's anywhere from a week to 14 days that you can be infectious. So having a long incubation period and being able to be transmitted to other people makes it a very good virus. And the fact that it doesn't kill its host makes it a very good virus as well. Uh, Ebola arguably is a very bad virus from the virus standpoint because it's not easily transmittable. It's very hard to necessarily get it, but, and it also kills a larger percentage of the people who get it. So in a way it's a scarier viruses virus, but it's not as good a virus from the virus's standpoint, if you want to look at it that way. And in terms of coronavirus, I hear that's kind of the same with SARS and MERS. It, it killed its host. It did. Those outbreaks were contained relatively quickly. And that could have been because the higher lethality rate, or it could have just been the populations and where it was located and that it was quickly responded to. So you mentioned tests, which I know has a lot of attention right now. Um, Beyond focusing on the fact that there is some availability shortages, and I know a lot of people are working on expanding those, Mm -hmm. how does the test actually work? How can you tell that you actually have COVID-19. Okay. So the test that the CDC is using is a polymerase chain reaction test. And that's a big word I know. But basically, as I talked about the virus being this ball with spikes coming out of it and having RNA in it, what you are testing is, do you have the RNA for this particular SARS virus in you? The SARS virus RNA is very different than the RNA that we have in our own body. So therefore, what you can do is you can actually test to see is there that RNA from that virus in your system, either in the swab that they're taking or in your blood? Most likely it's a swab that they're taking from your mouth, your lungs, and your throat. So you're basically are assessing, is the RNA product from that virus present in your body? And so I understand right now it takes about two to three days to get that positive reaction, but although some people are saying we can now do it in eight hours. So is two to three days a standard for one of those tests? So there are different ways you can run that test. And it has to do with the stringency of those tests. You can do a PCR test that you can have an answer in four or five hours. And I think that's what they're moving to. The as, the tests that were originally provided have a little longer turnaround time, 24 to 48 hours. So they're trying to bring what the federal government is trying to do with its state's governments is they're trying to increase the number of tests that are available, and then decrease the time so that when you are tested or I am tested, we are told within eight hours how we, how we fared in that test. Are we positive? Are we negative? So then we can be- begin self-quarantine to then stop the spread of the virus. So without going into too much details about the CDC, I know, I know one of the concerns I'm sure people are thinking of, what if it tells me I have a negative uh, test, but I actually have it? Or Maybe I got a positive and I don't have it. Do we have false negatives, false positives with these tests? With every test, there is a chance for a false positive or a false negative. So if you have the symptoms and you get the test and you come up negative, they may test you for other things because these symptoms are not necessarily specific for coronavirus. They could also be flu. There are other things that are running through the population. So they would probably test you for other agents to see what you do have. They would also repeat the test to see and getting multiple false positives or false negatives are much less likely. All right. Well, without going through any of the policies or politics that are surrounding this outbreak in different um, areas, you've been through a couple of different outbreaks. Mm -hmm. Um, How is this outbreak and what we've been doing with it differ 
um, than how we might have responded to Zika or Ebola or swine flu in 2009. Sure, sure. So uh, from, from the outbreaks that I've seen and the way we are responding, I think that uh, there has been a heightened awareness with this particular virus because we watched it in China and then we watched it in Europe and now it's coming here. In a way, that's a positive because we've been able to learn from both China and Europe about how to tailor our responses. So if you look at the responses that are going on right now, such as the schools being closed and church being recommended not to go to, those are response mechanisms that maybe were taken later in other countries because they weren't sure how well the virus would take. The fact that it's coming here later, arguably globally, allows us more time and we can adapt our policies from what we've learned from other places. So that, that's a positive, I would say. Uh, so, and as far as the response, the response is a response and that's what we're going to do and we need to be as prepared as we can. But what I would hope is that we can learn from this and we can be better prepared for future because you and I have talked about this before. Things are going to continue to come out of the woods and out of other countries and even within our own country that we have to be prepared for. And that's part of what's great about working where I work because we've been there for a while and we're going to continue to be there and we're going to continue to try to combat these infectious diseases as they continue to come out. All right. So one of the big things that I'm hearing in the past couple of days is this idea of flatten the curve. Mm -hmm. From a virus standpoint, how does flatten the curve actually help us handle this outbreak? Right. So if you, it was interesting. I read this report. If you look at the 1918 flu, they did a comparison of two cities. I believe it was St. Louis and Philadelphia. And they responded to the virus very differently. I, th I don't remember which city did which, but one basically shut down everything. There were basically what we're doing now. Uh, and what happened was they flattened the curve, which means the number of infectious cases and the number of deaths, rather than spiking and going up very quickly, was leveled off. Now, the virus lasted for a longer period of time in that population because it didn't kill off some of its patients. Uh, however, it decreased the overall lethality of that virus. So all the measures that we're taking right now are to try to flatten the curve, which is basically causing the virus to not be able to spread as quickly from person to person. So we're maintaining social distancing. And that is basically trying to bring that two to four number of transmissibility down to one or below one, because we are decreasing our interactions with other people where you would have a large group of people. So to just go back with that, pushing down that R naught, we, we mentioned, I, I've seen people say, oh, we don't really know because we're still trying to figure out yeah. how, how it's spreading. Um, but then there are some stable ones like measles, very infectious, 12 to, I've seen as far as 15, Ebola, not very, yes. you know. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we actually end up determining, all right, this is how many on average this people one person can infect? Retrospectively. After, <laughs> unfortunately, we gather the data as we go, and then it takes a large N or a large number of people to actually determine what that looks like. And a lot of that is done retrospectively. And we've had years with those other viruses. 
and multiple outbreaks. So the only thing we can compare this to right now are some very smaller outbreaks with SARS-1 and MERS, where you had less than 10,000 people between the two infected. So we don't have a large enough number to be able to start to look at that. So we will be looking at this retrospectively and real time as we go. And those numbers are going to change as we go. Uh, so it's going to be interesting from a scientific standpoint to see how those numbers flush out at the end and what our predictions are now. And just from a purely scientific standpoint, I know that right now our the CDC guidelines are relatively strict on who can get tested. Does that hurt the science in trying to figure out mm. what's going on with the disease if not everyone's getting tested? Uh, so I, I wouldn't say it hurts the science, but what I would say is if you don't have wide epidemiology as far as the number of people that are actually infected, um, but there are different ways of doing that. Um, we can retrospectively, after this outbreak, go back and assess, did you see the virus, but you didn't even really know it by looking at your immune system. So you can look at antibody titer and things like that, which can determine, well, maybe you actually saw the virus, you controlled it very well, you had a little bit of a cold, but you didn't have any other symptoms. We can tell that later on from other assays besides actually using the test to see if there's live virus. So I would argue if you have a limited reagent, which the testing kit right now is, you should utilize that not for the general population, but for the people who are sh really showing clinical signs, because you want to make sure you're able to get those people and get them on the right treatment path, whatever that may be, uh, in the hospitals and such. So rather than testing wide at this point, since we don't have the test, a very localized testing is more preferable. All right. And then just with the virus itself, um, I know the other thing that's kind of unclear is necessarily, we talk about social distancing between three to six, but uh, feet to stay away from people. Um, do we know if the virus hangs out in the air? Does it drop immediately on the surface? Can we pick it up off the surface? So there have been some studies that have been done recently about how long the virus stays viable on the surface. And I think those studies need to continue to actually understand it. We're still in we are very much in a learning phase about this virus. So uh, early reports that I have seen do not indicate that if you were to sneeze into the air, it would be in the what's called a fomite in, this, in the spute, sputum, and it would basically drop to the ground. So it doesn't appear to be hanging out. However, I think we're going to learn more as we go, and we are still in the early stages of this. And speaking of early stages, I'm almost amazed by how many emails I get from JAMA and PNAS and all the other different journals saying, we have uh, the Lancet, we have a new article, we have new articles. Is, I mean, I've talked to other people and they always say, you know, it takes like you do your studies, then you do another study, then you write the paper, then it gets peer reviewed. Is this amazing to see how much science is going on to try to figure out this disease in real time? So I think that that's a sign of the times that there are very quick, rapid ways with online journals now that you can actually get something to press very quickly. And when you have an outbreak like this or like Ebola was, basically if you are writing an article about that, they fast track that through the review process to actually get that out into the public because the idea is that that may inform better other researchers as they move forward. So having an open access so that you can actually inform that research so that someone else in another country can use your research to formulate new hypotheses that they want to test, that's the way that we're going to make advances globally. So I think it's a great thing. All right. Well, 
I know that the big question on everyone's mind, I have to imagine, is how much longer are we going to have to deal with this? I'm hearing a report or seeing reports that we haven't even hit a peak yet. So what does that mean for us? Are we going to be over this by the end of summer? Am I going to get to go on my vacation plans? So, <laughs> if I had the answer to those questions, I could probably sell it. I, I wish I knew. Uh, the, that is, at this point, we are still in the infancy of what we're looking at. We don't know what the trajectory is going to be of this particular outbreak. So I hate to say we have to wait and see and see how these response mechanisms that we are putting into place will hopefully flatten that curve that we talked about. Uh, I really don't know. That's a very difficult thing to ask. <laughs> and <laughs> is there even a way to try to project it? Like, can you do like, you know, the hurricane maps we see with a hurricane? Or is it more, we're going to do these response measures, we're hoping that these will work, and we will know when it ends, when it ends? So you could do mathematic mo mathematical modeling, and I know they have done so. But the problem is, I don't believe that there has been a virus like this with the numbers of people that we're talking about, that they could accurately do mathematical modeling. Because the, if you look back over time, a lot of things have changed in the last decade or two decades <clears throat> with response, with hospital capabilities here. In the, in, in, so we really don't know how this is going to play out on the other side. All right. Well, I think I'm done with all my questions. I'm going to give you a chance to add anything else. But on the side of good news, to kind of throw a curveball at you, I am seeing that at least with you know the Ebola outbreak in the DRC, we haven't seen any new cases in a while. That's true. Yep. So some positive news. Some positive news. As we deal with a different outbreak. As we and we, but I think that that's where I'd like to finish it, which is there are going to continue to be emerging infectious diseases like this uh, for multiple reasons. Um, and the important part is that there are places in the world and there are places in the United States like USAMRD and CDC and other places where we're going to be prepared and we're going to be able to fight this. So we are out there trying and we will continue to try to give our best and to actually work with other government agencies so that we can respond to this in a timely fashion. Well, Dr. Dai, thank you so much for coming on and answering all the questions that we could possibly have about the virus. You are welcome, and uh, I hope you have a nice day. Thanks, you too. Okay. Project Uncut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio, and edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.